Hey, greetings, and welcome back again to the Everyday Hope Podcast. It's good to be with you all again. Uh, Look, we've got a lot of ground to cover in this episode, so I'm going to forego the pleasantries, and we're just going to dive right into it, right? We're in Revelation 3, and we're still exploring the messages to the seven churches. We've already talked about the message to the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And we're learning a lot about what it means to be the church and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which is maybe not what you expected in a study of Revelation. But what we're learning is it's not always easy or popular to be a true follower of Jesus. And it's not any different today, right? The world today is a little like ancient Rome. As the Roman Empire conquered territories, they would simply absorb their culture and their gods. So people were allowed to continue to worship whatever gods they wanted as long as they also worshipped the required Roman gods, and especially the emperor. That was a biggie. And Christians got crosswise with Rome for a few reasons, but not the least of those was the fact that they kept insisting on this only one god business and refusing to worship the emperor. It's kind of similar nowadays. If you adopt a live and let live attitude, the world really doesn't care what you do. It's only when you say that things are right or wrong, or call something sin, or refuse to participate, in whatever whim the world takes on, that's when people get their feathers ruffled. But that's the thing. Christians are supposed to be different, to be set apart. Jesus doesn't want us to just act like everyone else as long as we write a nice check on Sunday. That's not how it works. Jesus wants true followers, and that's going to make you stand out. It's going to ruffle feathers from time to time. It was true then. It's true today. And the message to all of us is to hang on to endure, to conquer. Remember, victory in Revelation is not destroying the enemy, right? It's refusing to compromise our faith or surrender our faith. All right, so today we're going to turn our attention to the sixth church, the church at Philadelphia. Now, as we all know, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, and that's what the Greek words mean. The city was established by the king of Pergamum in honor of his beloved brother, But it was destroyed along with many other cities in the great earthquake in the middle of the first century. And like most of those cities, Rome helped Philadelphia rebuild. But with a cost, the city was renamed to Neo-Caesarea in honor of the emperor. Yet it continued to be known popularly as Philadelphia. Today, it's the modern city of Al-Asahir in Turkey. Now, as we do in each episode, I'm going to read the message to Sardis using the framework of those seven sections we've been talking about, right? So this is Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. And that first verse, verse 7, covers the first four parts, the destination, the command to write, the thus says section, and the description of the speaker, who is Jesus, right? So verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Well, it's a little bit of an unusual description of Jesus, and it's got kind of a messianic sound to it, right? And we're going to have to look into that later. Then comes the I know section in verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. It sounds to me like this I know section has a connection with the description of Jesus in the previous verse, right? It's very much about Jesus opening a door for believers that no one can close, which is encouraging to folks who are suffering. Then comes the arrangement section in verses 9 to 11. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but are lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Okay, so like Smyrna, this is the only other church that was not chastised for anything. Philadelphia is under persecution and Jesus encourages them with a promise about their future. Then finally, the proclamation in verses 12 to 13. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, this foreshadows the last chapters of Revelation, right? All right, so I mentioned a minute ago that in the message to Philadelphia, like the message to Smyrna, the church is not condemned. They're not warned about some bad behavior or doctrine. And it's clear that like Smyrna, even though this church is under pressure, they're keeping the faith. Jesus does not speak a single word of admonition. So today we don't need to focus on behavior we need to change. Instead, in this passage, we're just going to focus on two things. First, the description of Jesus, and second, the proclamation section in verses 12 to 13, and those three promises he makes to the church. Okay, so let's start with that first thing, the description of Jesus. Who is speaking to Philadelphia? Remember that in the fourth section, in every message, we get a description of the speaker. And since Jesus is speaking, this is Jesus' description of himself. Now, we could take this to be Jesus' self-understanding, but it makes more sense to see how Jesus wants us to understand him. He reveals something of his nature in each of these descriptions. So real quick, let's review what we've learned about Jesus so far. To Ephesus, Jesus has full authority and is ever present among the churches. To Smyrna, Jesus is the one who gives eternal life since he has died and risen to conquer death. To Pergamum, Jesus is the one who wields the sharp two-edged sword, the living and penetrating word of God. To Thyatira, Jesus is the true son of God whose eyes burn through the lies to see the truth and whose burnished feet stand firm in all situations. And to Sardis, Jesus maintains the church because he is, in fact, God, possessing the complete and perfect sevenfold spirit of God. In the message to Philadelphia, Jesus remains all of these things. The previous descriptions never stop being true. Yet in this message, Jesus describes himself specifically as the Holy One and the True One, and the one who has the key of David, who opens and shuts. These are two descriptions that are very important revelations from Jesus about who he is. So let's take a look at each one. Now, Jesus begins by referring to himself as the Holy One and the True One. To an ancient audience, to a Hebrew audience, this is significant. There's only one being who can truly call himself the Holy One and therefore be worshipped as the Holy One, and that person is God. And that designation has roots throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 40:25, God says, to whom then will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. In Habakkuk 3.3, we're told that God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And then in Mark 1.24, a demon-possessed man enters the synagogue, and the demon shouts at Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And in John 6.69, Peter affirms on behalf of the disciples that we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now here in verse 7, Jesus proclaims himself again to be the Holy One and the True One. 
Now, many people have claimed the title Son of God. Many false messiahs and gods have set themselves up as something they're not. In the city of Philadelphia, like most other cities in the region, there would have been two entities making claims to be the Son of God or the Son of a God, the emperor in Rome and the patron deity of the city. In addition, the Jews of this city would be under the influence of the local synagogue, which was undoubtedly teaching that Jesus was a false messiah and that those who proclaim him as the Christ, the anointed one, are false prophets. It's also likely that those who believed in Jesus and were Jews would be denied access to the synagogue. This would be the Jewish equivalent of being excommunicated from the church. Those denied access to the synagogue would be outside the future salvation of God. To these people, Jesus declares himself to be the Holy One and the True One. The combination of these titles suggests a messianic declaration. Jesus is affirming that he is the true Son of God, the true Messiah, in opposition to false gods of the Roman Empire, and in opposition to the synagogue of Satan, who declares that he is a false Messiah. Very good news to all of those under persecution for claiming to follow Jesus, with me? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's, he's not merely confirming his divine status. He's also giving the church a practical implication of that status. Jesus proclaims he is the one who possesses the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This is another important phrase with deep roots in scripture. Now, if you think back to your Jewish history, during the time when the Assyrian army was threatening to destroy Israel completely, a man named Shebna held an important position in the royal court. He aided the king and in some cases even governed in the king's name. One night, while Shebna is shirking his responsibility to the people, and was instead lurking around the royal mausoleum, picking out a kingly burial place for himself, the Lord sent a prophetic word to Shebna through the prophet, probably Isaiah. And I want to read you what the prophet says. This is Isaiah 22, 19-23. God says, I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your post. On that day I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him. I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and no one shall shut. He shall shut, and no one shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his ancestral house. Shebna was abusing the authority of his office and shirking his duties. When the people were desperately hoping to survive the Assyrian army, he was off preparing for his own burial. It's clear that this man had overstepped the boundary of his authority and allowed his ego to inflate his sense of self-importance. In Revelation 3.7, Jesus uses the same language as Isaiah, language that people would surely understand. The one who has placed himself in a position of authority has abused that authority. He's speaking of the, the religious establishment, the synagogue, which has taken the office of salvation onto their own shoulders. The synagogue has also begun to deny entry to people who proclaim Jesus as Lord, thereby attempting to deny them salvation. Jesus proclaims that the office is his alone. He alone holds the key of David. They can't deny them salvation because he alone has the authority to admit or deny. To whomever he opens the door, that door will remain open. And no one, including the synagogue, can shut it to them. And to whom Jesus closes that door, no one, including the synagogue, can open it. The authority to provide entry into paradise is his and his alone. This is the one who speaks to the church at Philadelphia. 
So, Jesus is the true Son of God, God himself, who has complete authority to admit or deny entry into salvation. So what does this Jesus proclaim to the church at Philadelphia? His proclamation makes them three promises. To keep them from the hour of trial, to make them a pillar in God's temple, and to write on them a threefold inscription. Now, let's take a look at all three of those, and, and let's start in verse 10 with the promise to keep them from the hour of trial. Now, there are two ways to interpret the Greek in this passage. One is to understand that God will prevent the church from being present at the hour of trial. And the other is that God will protect the church during the hour of trial. Those who believe that the church will be raptured before the coming tribulation interpret the verse in the first way, that God will prevent the church from being present during tribulation. And given that we live in a place and at a time where the church is not really facing persecution, it's it's easy for us to see it that way. However, this was not the case in Philadelphia in 90 AD. This was a church facing ongoing trial in their present. And to a church facing constant daily persecution, this passage means so much more. They are suffering now and are looking for hope to continue bearing up under pressure. To that church, Jesus said that he will bear with them and protect them during the times of trial they face. With this context in mind, the context of the church during persecution, it sounds more likely that Jesus is saying the church will be protected during the coming time of trial. Think about what God's purpose is in telling this church that he will protect them. John's vision is about to describe the judgment of God upon a sinful and unbelieving world. The church, who is already suffering, might lose heart at hearing this scary stuff. Yet Jesus, the true one who opens doors no one can shut, promises that the judgments of God will not be inflicted upon those who believe and endure. He promises to protect the church during the evil times ahead. Now, I'm not making a decision on whether or not you should believe in premillennialism or postmillennialism. We're really not talking about that stuff. We're just trying to look at this passage and see what makes the most sense, right? And what makes the most sense is that Jesus says, when times of trial come, I will not let them overcome you. You with me? All right. The second promise is about making them pillars in the temple of God. To the people of John's day, pillars were important structures. Now to us, you know, they're decorative. To them, they were often the load-bearing members of any building. They were foundational, the things that held the building in place and held it together. Just, just think about pictures you've seen of ancient ruins, right? What's usually the only thing left standing? I don't know how many pictures I've seen of ancient ruins and all that's left are the pillars. The pillars are permanent fixtures. You don't rip a pillar out of a building without bringing the house down. Pillars were rooted and anchored in the building, so this promise is important to the church. And consider that while the earthly temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed twice, the temple of God is the temple of permanence that will never be destroyed. So Jesus is promising to make them a permanent fixture in a permanent structure. This is the promise of salvation for good. The church would not have to fear because the promise God made them was a promise of permanence. Their salvation was an eternal legacy that no earthly authority could take away from them. When they were brought into that eternal salvation, they would be rooted in it like a pillar in the temple of God. And no false synagogue, no synagogue of Satan could tear them away from it. Now, finally, the third promise is about a threefold inscription. He says, he will write three names on the ones who endure, the name of God, the name of the city of God, and his own name. 
And I want you to think about these three names in terms of possession, in terms of having or owning something and what that might mean. So first, Jesus promises to write on them the name of God. And I want you all to think about your underwear. But don't think about anyone else's underwear. Just think of your own underwear. And think of what your mom did to your underwear the day before you went off to summer camp. She wrote your name on it, right? Why? Well, because when your name is written on your underwear, everyone knows that they belong to you. When Jesus promises to write God's name on us, he is promising that we belong to God. And everyone who sees us will know that we belong to him. We will be his possession and will belong to him. And he will safeguard all of his possessions and everyone will know it. That's a really cool promise. Second, Jesus promises to write on them the name of the city of God, the the new Jerusalem that we will actually see coming out of the clouds in chapter 21. Now, think about this. Who has a passport? Is there a country listed on your passport? And what does that passport tell people, right? It tells them that you are a citizen of that country. And if you are a citizen of that country, then you have a right to live there. The, The right, right? They have to let you in. Jesus makes this promise to the church. You will have the new Jerusalem stamped on your passport. You will possess citizenship in that city, the city of salvation. And if you are a citizen of that city, you have the right to live there. You are given that right by the true one, the holy one, the one with complete authority to grant that citizenship. And it it doesn't matter if the religious leaders try to deny you entrance. It doesn't matter if some church excommunicates you. Jesus has made you a citizen, which is another very cool promise. And finally, Jesus promises to write on them his own new name. Now, keep thinking in terms of possession, right? God owns us, but we own Jesus. Does that idea freak you out? How can we own Jesus? How can he belong to us? Well, when Jesus, the Holy One, the True One, and the One with complete authority, writes his new name on us, we possess him in a special way. Not only are we God's possession, But we own Jesus in a way that means no one can take him away from us. Remember that this is what the synagogue of Satan is threatening, to take the Messiah away. They deny entrance. They say you have no share in the day of the Lord. They say Messiah is not yours and you cannot be saved. And Jesus says, no, you possess me in a way that they can never take me away from you. I am yours. I will write my name on you. And no synagogue of Satan can take that away from you. Might be the coolest promise of all, right? Now, remember, we've been trying to understand these messages, not only as messages to the churches or to the capital C church, but also as messages to each one of us. And that means we should hear the promises in this message as promises to each of us. Jesus says that we belong to God. He has marked us so that everyone will know we belong to him. Jesus says that we are citizens in the new Jerusalem and that no one can deny us entrance to that city. And Jesus says that he belongs to us and that no one can take him away from us. And Jesus makes these promises as the Holy One, as God himself. He makes these promises as the true one, just in case someone tries to tell you that there's another Messiah or that Jesus is not who he says he is. And he makes these promises as the one with complete authority. He is the only one who can make them, and he has made them real. Jesus proclaims that what he opens remains open and no one can shut it. So when he promises you citizenship and eternal life, Not only can he do that, but no one else can deny you access. If you endure, if you have real faith, then you belong to God. You are his possession, and you are granted eternal life by the great door opener himself. 
Can you imagine what this message meant to a bunch of folks who were under the threat of constant persecution? It'd be one thing to tell those folks not to worry, but it's another thing to assure them that what they've been given can't be taken away by any earthly power. Not Rome, not Jerusalem, no one. But I've had this conversation with a bunch of friends over the past month. 2020 just sucks. I mean, pardon my French, but it does. In fact, the last half of 2019 was no party either. So this message has been resonating with me this week. No matter what's going on, church problems, work problems, COVID problems, it can't change the truth that Jesus has opened a door for me that none of these issues can close. So what are you struggling with? What fears or anxieties are beating you up? What is life throwing at you? What, what damage is all this doing to your sense of self-worth? How is COVID wrecking your life? How much financial trouble are you in? How much doubt? How much uncertainty? Jesus is saying, do you not know who I am? Do you not know who you are to me? Do you not know how much I love you? What can this world do to you if I open this door for you? The world cannot close it on you. Look, the promise is not that there will never be bad times or struggles. The promise is that those struggles will never close the door on you. They can't. Only Jesus holds that key. So whatever does come, you can make it. This morning, the Holy One, the True One, the One who owns the key of David, declares to us that He has opened a door for us that no one can shut. The world can throw any silly roadblocks at once at us, but it can never shut that door. We are God's possession. We have been granted citizenship in His holy city. Our Jesus makes us righteous with a righteousness the world can never take away. Live in that truth, amen? All right, I'm going to pray for you right now. And as always, remember, I want you to be safe. Keep your eyes on what you're doing. And just let your hearts pray with me now. Father, we thank you so much for the promises that you make us. A lot of the messages we've heard so far, Lord, have, have been messages about what we shouldn't do or what we're doing wrong. But Lord, we need to hear your encouragement, the promises that you've made to us. Not things that you owe us, but things that you give us out of your grace. We praise you for the reality that we belong to you, that what you have given us can't be taken away, can't be taken away by suffering, can't be taken away by the world, it can't be taken away by anyone. So we praise you, Lord, for the gift of life that you have given us. We praise you for the promise that you will be with us during our times of struggle. We're struggling now, Lord, so please be with us and bring us up out of this valley. We praise you for the way you love us, and we say we love you back. All right, thanks all for joining me again. I'll talk to you all next time as we look at the final message to the seven churches.